Tonight on this recorded edition of Extension 720, the truth behind the fiction of Moby Dick. There was uh, a major misadventure which certainly had something to do with shaping the idea of um, Melville's great novel and surely its ending. And uh, telling us about that in a very interesting new book is Nathaniel Philbrick, who I should say is the director of the Egan Institute of Maritime Studies on Nantucket Island. So, uh, the uh, Moby Dick begins with the scene in Nantucket and, uh, the, sh and the ship is heading out on its first great quest. Uh, Nantucket was the base, was it not? Yeah. Uh, of it, American it, whaling in those days. In the early 19th century, it was the whaling capital of the world. And this was before the emergence of New Bedford. And so Nantucket was an island of about 7,000 people at this point, only 50 square miles, but the center of a, a global business, the, the oil business of its day. Somebody's raised an interesting question in one of the reviews of your book, I think. Uh, why was the capital of American whaling in New England when the whale fields were way out in the Pacific? Yeah, as I talk about in the first chapter, uh, the uh, it began because... The first settlers were originally sheep herders, realized this was no way to wealth, but they also realized that there were right whales to the south of the appearing to the south of the island every fall and staying there till the spring. And they eventually started heading out in little twenty five foot boats with the local Indians as the oarsmen. And and they were so successful in killing these whales that they got larger boats, headed out and began to specialize in the sperm whale, which uh, produces a, a higher quality of oil. And when does whaling really begin as an organized industry based uh, in Nantucket? Based on Nantucket, it begins about 1690. That far back? Yeah, yeah. And so, th in fact, whaling uh, began in a, in a context in which the island was still, the majority of the population was still Native American at this point. Mm -hmm. So that uh, the, the white Nantucketers were controlling the industry, but they were using Native labor. The title of the new book of yours, which I have not yet told our listeners, is The Heart of the Sea, The Tragedy of the Whale Ship Essex. And this goes to a particular date in March of 1820. Do I remember correctly? Uh, at November of 1820, when the, the ship was attacked by a giant sperm whale and sunk uh, almost directly on the equator, about yeah. 1,500 miles. They're west of the Galapagos. Yeah, yeah. 1,500 miles to the west of the Galapagos. Yeah. Uh, what happened on that fateful day? And for that matter, uh, who was on the Essex yeah, the as Essex, they headed out into the Pacific? Right. It was a fairly typical crew uh, at, for that time in the whale fishery. There were 20 men. About half of them were from Nantucket. The other half were off-islanders, with six of them being African-Americans who had been shipped to Nantucket just before the ship left from on a packet from Boston. And so when the uh, sh this whale attacked, and it was a huge sperm whale, it was the first mate, Owen Chase, estimated to be 85 feet, which would have been, which was the length of the ship. And today, uh, they haven't found male sperm whales any larger than 65 feet. So, so this was a huge creature. The captain of the Essex uh, was out on the sea in a whale boat, pursuing one of the whales. Chase, the, who was essentially the first mate, was he not? Mm -hmm. Right. Was doing the same in yet another boat. There were three boats out. Right. On that day. There were three boats out, and that's the number of boats this this particular whale ship had six men in each boat and they were pursuing whales and chase's boat uh, was they threw the harpoon and were about were after this one whale when its tail whacked the whale boat uh, opened up a hole and forced them to return to the whale ship for repairs 
Uh, and while they're back on the ship trying to repair the whale boat, here comes this tremendous animal the, towards them. Yes, on the port side of the ship, uh, the cabin boy, the 14-year-old Thomas Nickerson, mm -hmm. uh, was at the helm, and he was the first to see it there. On the port side of the ship, this huge whale, its head etched with scars, pointed directly at the ship. And initially, they, they weren't concerned, because never before had a, a sperm whale been known to attack a whale ship. They got. They tried to get away from well, it, suddenly it began from to... ships and sailors and so exactly. on. Exactly, than... they were benign creatures. They could they could take out an entire whale boat yeah. and and the men just by their their panics, but uh, they were not particularly known as offensive, revengeful creatures. Had had a ship ever been destroyed by a whale accidentally yes. coming alongside? Yes, the ship Union, uh, a number of years earlier, was cruising, actually in the Atlantic, uh, at night when it just ran into a sperm whale. And, and sunk, but uh, something very different was going on with the Essex. What accounts for the attack? That, that's one of the, the first great mystery that haunts your book. Yes, exactly, and it was really one of the main motivations for me wanting to revisit this. Uh, well, Chase had a theory. He, he watched it, and, and his theory was that the whale was acting in revenge uh, for what the havoc the other two whale boats were doing with the whales to the south mm -hmm. of the ship. But in talking with sperm whale experts, it's interesting. They say that male sperm whales are, are itinerants. They, they, they are loners, and they make no, once they get to a certain age, they swim off to the high latitudes, eventually returning and revisiting the pods that are made primarily of females and juveniles. And they'll revisit them for just a few hours, sometimes mate, and then move on. They, they don't form any permanent attachments. So, uh, it's doubtful that this whale was acting in defense when it came to the other whales. It may, however, uh, what what they did attack regularly were other sperm whales. They're like male bull elephants uh, that, mm -hmm. that uh, routinely will go after one another. And uh, the behavior it possessed of, of attacking the ship because it rammed it once and then rammed it a second time and was clearly an angry sperm whale. So it's possible that this angry sperm whale thought he was assaulting another sperm whale. It's possible, but you know, sperm whales have the largest brain of any creature that has ever been on here. And the, the largest body. The brain yes, to body right. ratio yes. isn't necessarily no, too different from not, our own. No, it's not. In fact, there have been recent studies, you know, because a certain amount of your brain is dedicated to maintaining your body, yeah. you know, and it doesn't contribute to your intelligence. But still, when you look at them compared to chimpanzees and porpoises, when you figure that, that in, they're up there in terms of intelligence. And, uh, you know, I, I don't, no one knows what was going through the head of the sperm whale, but there is also an intriguing factor in that Chase was nailing a, repairing his whale boat. He was nailing a piece of canvas to the side. And the sound of that hammering was going down through the ship out into the sea. And as it turns out, sperm whales communicate through clicking noises that the whalemen could hear through the timbers of their whale ships. And they sounded so much like the tapping of a hammer that they called them the carpenter yeah. fish. So perhaps there was uh, an element of, of a that perhaps Chase was unintentionally getting the whale's attention. The whale's destruction of the Essex takes place within... Just a few minutes, actually. Yeah. Uh, there was the initial hit, which knocked every man off his feet. And then he comes around for a second go. Then he comes around for a second go. And this time, he's going a lot faster. Yeah. And he comes right on the bow, uh, crushes it like an eggshell. <laughs> and uh, according to one account, he hit it with such force that he even forced the ship backwards, which is uh, unbelievable. Uh, disengaged himself from this 
now sinking hulk swam off never to be seen again but now these men were on a ship that was sinking very quickly they had a spare whale boat attached to a rack above the deck and usually it took the entire crew about ten minutes to offload an unrigged whale boat and get it ready for the ocean but they didn't have anywhere close that time so chase and some of the men began getting the spare whale boat ready while the african-american steward uh, realized that if they were going to be in this boat without their ship what they needed more than anything was navigational equipment so he dashed down below into the sinking ship into the captain's cabin retrieved two quadrants two compasses and two navigational guides and as chase would say later uh, if it hadn't been for this it was a courageous act because the ship was filling with water uh, they would have been lost from the start so there they are, within half an hour after the whale's assault, uh, the ship's company on three separate whale boats, uh, floundering in confusion as to what has happened and what to do. They do make another foray into the hulk of the ship, which hasn't fully uh, submerged yet, to get uh, retrieve what food and, and uh, potable water they can. Right. And... <laughs> And now the question is, what do we do? Where do we go from here? Right. And uh, they were as about as close to being in the middle of nowhere as a Nantucket whaleman could mm -hmm. be at this point. This was at a point where they had just ventured into a newly discovered whaling ground, the offshore ground, a couple of thousand miles off the coast of South America. They knew the coast of South America very well, but they did not know the Central Pacific, the islands in the Central Pacific at all, except for rumors of cannibalism. Now, if you look at where they are on the map and you know that they have uh, trade winds from the southeast, what they should have done in hindsight, and what Melville says they should have done in hindsight mm -hmm. in his notes uh, and Owen Chase's account of, of the disaster, is that they should have sailed for Tahiti, the Society Islands. They would have been there in a matter of weeks, and uh, all would probably have been saved. But they, what they didn't know was that there was a British mission in Tahiti, which had been there for decades. In fact, the, the chapel in Tahiti was bigger than any Quaker meeting house back on Nantucket. Mm -hmm. Well, Pollard, seeing this, although he didn't know much about the islands, proposed that they sail for Society Islands. His, his mates, however, disagreed. They were fearful of cannibals, and after an attack from the normally benign sperm whale, they were very reluctant to trust the unknown. And they said they proposed this, that they sail against the wind, against the prevailing currents, back to South America. And Which would have been how many miles away? Almost 3,000 miles away, if they could, could have headed directly to it, but mm -hmm. they couldn't. And what Chase proposed was that if they would sail directly south, uh, about 1,500 miles, doing a degree of latitude a day was their hope, uh, in 30 days, they would be in what was known as a band of variable breezes. Mm -hmm. Now, they ha figured they had about 60 days worth of provisions, uh, starvation rations, but 60 days. So Essentially just bread and water. Bread and water. Hard and water. Right, right. They would get to these variables in 30 days, and then they would take a big left and attempt to head directly east to South America, which would still be about 3,000 miles yeah. away. And... Uh, but they figured with luck they could do that in 30 days. So if everything went right, they could get to South America under their time limit. 
if everything went right. But in but point every, of fact, everything did not go right. A lot went very wrong very quickly. Yes, very uh, from the beginning, they, they uh, encountered horrendous conditions, uh, storms, but it was really the calms that was uh, mm -hmm. driving them to the, the, the worst extremes because what they realized, it wasn't bread that they needed the most, it was water, and dehydration became a terrible problem for them. Uh, they, would, they were stuck as if pinned <laughs> to the ocean at one point, and they were in open boats, only 25 feet long, and so they really had no way to shelter themselves, and so uh, they were just broiling under the sun and uh, with really no and at one point they tried to row themselves out of the calm but by this point they were so hungry that after just a few hours of rowing which they waited to do it till at night they all collapsed in, in heaps and, and just gave up from there on it grows more and more strenuous more and more desperate uh, and ultimately uh, not instantly but ultimately uh, they turn to cannibalism yeah and how does that happen? Well, it's, it's, of course, the worst extreme anyone can be driven to. And what would happen is they would stumble across an island, Henderson Island, an uninhabited island that did not have enough food to really support them, although three of the men would ask to stay there. They would head out from Henderson, and within a couple of weeks, people would begin to die. And one by one, they would succumb to starvation. Initially, uh, they buried the bodies of the dead. But... Uh, after Chase's boat had been separated from the other two, on Pollard's and the second mate's boat, uh, it, they quickly realized, after a third person died, that if they did not eat this, this man's flesh, uh, they would have no other recourse and all would die. Now, something that rings uh, in resonance is um, the rhyme of the ancient mariner. Yes. Was that based... I'm not quite sure when Coleridge wrote. No, that. no, they're they're different, but they but what they are. But speak it has a similar theme. Oh, exactly. It's marooned what, sailors who eat one another. Well, and what I found in my research is that you know this was not that extraordinary. Uh, this was an extraordinary story, but people were resorting to survival cannibalism at sea yeah. in the early 19th century. Uh, frighteningly often. Is Coleridge's poem written before the Essex yes, uh, incident? Yes, yeah. I think it must yes. be. But it's based upon, I think I remember reading, some similar Oh, yeah, yeah, this kind of thing. In the annals of British uh, mm -hmm. seamanship. Right, right. So, I mean, this was a sailor, this was one of the terrors. These yeah. men knew exactly what was waiting for them. And so that it was, uh, which makes the, the whole situation all the harder to bear as you watch yourselves succumbing to starvation and dehydration. Without going into too much of the grisliness of it all, uh, how indeed did they go about devouring their dead uh, uh, yeah. fellow well, sailor? Well, uh, in Chase's boat, uh, they would only ha ha be reduced to eating only one of them. And he gives us quite a detailed account of how they went about it. Uh, apparently, they, it, it took, they were a night with the body before they could bring themselves to the fact that this is what they had to do. Mm. And, so, and one of the things they did was they immediately ate the heart, uh, where, you know, uh, better vitamins in, in those kinds of organs. And they immediately devoured that. And then they began to cut the, uh, they, they had some more meat, but they knew they had to save it. They had to ration it in some way. And they c cut it into strips. And they attempted to dry some of the strips in the sun, and they roasted some of the others. And uh, after a day or two, the ones that they were trying to, to dry out began became rancid, and so they immediately uh, put those on the fire. And that was able to last them a week or so on, on this dead body. With what compunctions, with what uh, uh, 
hesitations or with what sense of violating a taboo do they go at this cannibalistic excess? Well, well what Chase says, it was, it was just uh, beyond words, he yeah. says, the, the ex what they were experiencing as they were having to do this. But as other people who have, have lived through a survival cannibalism experience, I mean, these people are moved to the last extreme. Yeah. Donner Pass is another such Donner, incident. Donner, uh, the Andes disaster, mm -hmm. uh, which a soccer team was out there. I mean, th this happens, and uh, often it's the people who live through it uh, can handle it better than the society to which they return. Because, as many people have said, cannibalism is, is really one of our last taboos. More on the fate of the whale ship Essex, or rather the sailors of the, whale sh of the destroyed whale ship Essex, and more on the connection between this sad, strange tale from real life and the uh, inspiration of Moby Dick. Uh, that to follow right after we pause briefly for these words. We are talking tonight on this recorded edition of Extension 720 with Nathaniel Philbrick who is the author of In the Heart of the Sea, The Tragedy of the Whale Ship Essex. And indeed, this is a, a sobering tale, to say the least. Oh, it's... And it's, a very uh, disturbing one. Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, the three uh, whale ship uh, groups uh, lost sight of one another after a while, right. did they? Yeah, uh, they, there were three whale boats, and the first to become separated was Owen Chase. Yeah. And then uh, Pollard's, who was the captain's boat, and the second mate's boat stayed together for quite a while. But they eventually became so weak uh, that they, they found it increasingly difficult to keep track of one another, and they separated. And the third, second, the second mate's boat would be lost and never heard from again. Mm-hmm. But the other two ultimately are rescued, aren't they? Yes. The other two are ultimately rescued. Chase's would be the first to be rescued near the island of Massafura. Uh, there would be, including Chase, three men left, all of them Nantucketers. Mm -hmm. uh, they were uh, so weak that the, the sailors on the English ship that rescued them had to carry them up onto the... Now, this vessel. is after how many days uh, adrift? This is just about 90 days adrift. 90 days. Yes. And it's at the island, you said, of... Massafura. Which off, is where? Off the coast of South America. Pretty yeah, close so, to the coast. Yes, but pretty close. And the amazing thing is that this was what Chase had been aiming for. Mm -hmm. And they had been so mm -hmm. weak that they could not manage their steering oar. They couldn't adjust the sails at times. And to be able to to get within almost sight of this island, because that's when they were picked up, it's just an amazing uh, feat of navigation considering the, the state they were in. And the other boat? Um, yeah, a, a Captain Pollard's boat. Uh, it was beyond Pollard's boat where really the, the most horrible situations would be encountered. Uh, it got to the fact that point where there were just four people ab aboard, Pollard and four Nantucket teenagers, including his young cousin, Owen Coffin, uh, in which uh, Pollard's aunt had entrusted him with her eldest son. And uh, they reached the point where they realized that if they didn't, if someone wasn't sacrificed to become food for the others, they all might die. And, this is, and so they decided to draw lots. This is known as the custom of the sea. Yes, so this is not a matter of eating the corpse of one who has already died right. naturally, but under severity, but rather deciding they would have to kill one of their number. Right, and uh, this is something, the first recorded incidents of this is from the 1640s. Uh, when a ship was blown off of uh, out in the Caribbean out to sea. So this was something that there was a whole established protocol for dealing with it. And initially the captain resisted, said, if I die, feel free, but we're not going to do this. But uh, the, two te the three teenagers convinced him to go ahead. They drew lots, taking pieces of paper from a hat,
and the 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 uh, death lot fell to Owen Coffin, uh, mm -hmm. Pollard's young cousin. And Pollard immediately said, "Listen, I'll take this. There's no reason for you to do it. I'll kill the man who touches you." And uh, Owen Coffin, who was had, was raised a Quaker, uh, said that no, he liked his lot as well as any other, and it had been justly done. So then they had to do the process one more time to see who would be the executioner. And it fell to Charles Ramsdell, who had grown up with Coffin on Nantucket. And he initially said that there's no way he was going to go through with it. But it became clear uh, the mechanism was, was moving. And so uh, he, he dispatched his friend with a pistol that was on the whaleboat. And uh, as Pollard would later say, that soon there was nothing of him left. Hmm. After that, uh, another of the young Nantucketers would die until it was just Pollard and Ramsdell. And uh, they were found by a Nantucket whale ship, almost within sight of Chile. And they were found sucking the bones of their dead messmates, this is a quote, which they were loath to part with. Uh, they had apparently gone over the edge, and even after they had been rescued, they refused to give up these bones and the, the life-sustaining marrow they, they contained. What happened to Pollard? in the years after the rescue? Well, uh, Pollard... Did he remain sane and competent? Pollard was a, a apparently a very well-balanced individual. Um, he uh, recovered amazingly quickly, although physically he was in rough shape at the beginning, but he returned to Nantucket in August, months after being picked up in February. And that November, he was out again. He had get, was given the captaincy of another whaling vessel. And really a tribute to his personality is the fact that he had two Essex crew members with him, Thomas Nickerson, the youngest, and Charles Ramsdell, the kid who was found in the whaleboat with him. I and mean, if there isn't a character reference in that, I don't know <laughs> what is. And so Pollard would head out again. And, uh, and there's an interesting account of Pollard uh, in the months early months of that voyage, he, they, they came across an, a naval ship, and a young midshipman questioned him about this. And uh, Pollard said, seemed very cheerful about it. It was well, not cheerful, but uh, was was not visibly scarred. And the and the young man asked him how he could go out after suffering something like that. And he said, "Well, you know, there's a saying: the lightning doesn't strike in the same place twice." But for Captain Pollard, it would. Uh, just a few months later, later, they were on their way to a newly discovered whaling ground, the Japan ground. When uh, in a storm, uh, they weren't quite sure where they were uh, because uh, they were just using dead reckoning in the storm. They came up upon French frigate shoals off Hawaii. Uh, the ship was a total loss. The men had to take to the whaleboats in the middle of this, these stormy conditions. Can you imagine the emotions of, of Pollard and his two Essex mm. crew members uh, when they went to these boats? And uh, they were, luckily they were rescued the next day. But as Pollard told a missionary on his way back to Nantucket, uh, my whaling career is ended because all will think me an unlucky man. Hmm. Did he go on to live uh, yeah, a long uh, life? Well, you know, one of the uh, I came across some new information about Pollard. Uh, we do know that he returned to Nantucket, became a night watchman, and uh, where he would uh, live out his life. And uh, I, w I was given access to the reminiscences of a man who, as a young boy, uh, in, in the middle of the 19th century, was part of the Pollard's extended family. And I think all of us had an image of Pollard as this dour, uh, grizzled figure. Uh, but what this man says is he, he was short, fat, loving the good things in life, uh, that he was uh, often jolly, 
and uh, he was beloved by the young people in the island because it was his responsibility mm -hmm. to get them all in for the nine o'clock curfew, and apparently he was very good at his job. However, on November 20th, every year, in memory of the loss of the whale ship Essex, he would lock himself in his room and fast in memory of those who had died in the ship. So, you know, he, he seems to have put the disaster behind him, and yet he it's not like uh, he shut it out from his life. He did not write a memoir on this, but the first mate, Owen Chase, did. Right. Uh, wrote a history of the uh, whale ship Essex, um, and indeed, indeed that was published only a year or so after the disaster. Right, almost and exactly. And it was a great, yeah. and it was a book, it was a bestseller in its time. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, and you know, it, it sold well, sold well, and uh, it, it had a lot of distribution in terms of, particularly in the maritime community, and one of the fascinating things is decades later, Herman Melville would be uh, uh, a young whaleman in the 18th He's shipping out and he meets another young whaleman who was Owen Chase's son. Exactly. And, of course, by this point, everyone talked about the Essex, and Melville had heard about it. But to meet Owen Chase's son, he yeah. questioned the boy very closely. And the boy uh, went to his sea chest, took out his copy of his father's narrative, and gave it to Melville. Melville took it back to his ship, read it that night. And he said, and he, in his own copy that he would later acquire of Owen Chase's narrative, he wrote that it profoundly moved him. And, of course, we know it would ultimately result in probably the greatest American sea novel ever written. Do you think so? Uh, at least the culmination of the great final scenes of Moby Dick are based upon yep. the assault of the whale uh, upon the Essex. The great white whale is coming, and Ahab stands there cursing him, and uh, yep. it's a battle between these two giants. Right. But uh, would this uh, great epic of American whalemen by... Melville not have been written at all but for his encounter with the history of the Essex, or is it just that it shaped the structure and the ending of the I book? mean, that is, I think that's an answer, that's very difficult to answer. I think, you know, it gave, it definitely gave Melville the plot around which to mm -hmm. build a tale that goes in a thousand It gave different. him the Sacco ending. Right, anyway. yeah, right. Yeah. But, and, you know, he even directly refers to the Essex, but yeah. uh, in the novel. But you know, when I the more I I researched and and <clears throat> became engaged with the Essex story itself, the more I became convinced that a lot of the the sinister menace, the the, the whole sense of man against nature, the whole sense of leadership that we see in Melville's Moby Dick, uh, there's a lot of the Essex in there. It's hidden. It's buried. But uh, I'm convinced that the Essex is um, is an underappreciated yeah. element in in Moby Dick. What do you think? is going on symbolically and poetically for Melville in his making the whale the strangely white whale, this spectral whale yeah. of the seas. There is that portion of Moby Dick, which is really an essay within the book, on the whiteness of the whale. Right. I mean, it's it it's it it makes something of nature out of nature in a way, I mean, and it's an anomaly, and it and it's and it's a it's a white void in which. Anything you think, you know, it 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 gestures us to to bring ourselves to it. It becomes a Rorschach test in a way, mm -hmm. and uh, you know that's what Moby Dick has become to not only everyone on the Pequod, but to countless readers and scholars. Uh, I mean, everyone sees something different in that whale, and by making him white, uh, he 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 he, pu he he pulls him out of nature, and yet. Uh, he is symbolic of nature's uh, in, in all sorts of ways. Melville, of course, 
uh, did a number of other works which reflect his experiences as a seaman. Uh, the uh, novelized version of his trip to the Marquesas. Mm -hmm. Taipei. Taipei. And then the book, is it Umu mm -hmm. or Omu? Uh, these are all drawn from his experiences, right. rousting about the South Seas on whale boats, whale ships from Nantucket. Uh, actually, fr yeah, he was from New he, he shipped out of New Bedford. He shipped out of New Bedford. New Bedford, yeah. but uh, and one of the ironies is uh, Melville never it appears he never s visited Nantucket until after so. writing Moby Dick, which yeah. I found very depressing at, when I found that out after moving to the island. But yes, he he began his career really. Uh, th these aren't memoirs; these are fiction, but they are very uh, much based on his own experiences, and they were huge successes. Unlike, unfortunately, Moby Dick. Though strangely, he ends his life. Uh, with a vast writing block and in obscurity. Yeah, but you know he 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 continued to write. It was uh, he he wrote a huge poem <laughs> called Clarelle that uh, uh, was privately printed. No one read it. Um, I think there are very few uh, people who read it in in the 21st century. But in that poem, he revisits the Essex disaster. He has a figure of Pollard who uh, lives through a whale attack and uh, losing his ship. And it's based on, a lot of it, the imagery seems to be based on Melville's own meeting with Pollard. Because mm -hmm. the summer after he published Moby Dick, he would, he would visit Nantucket for the first time, traveling there with his father-in-law, Justice Shaw. And uh, he would meet Captain Pollard, and in his own copy of uh, Chase's narrative, written in green crayon, late in life, uh, because he had eye problems, he began to write with mm -hmm. crayon, he, he writes of that meeting, and he, he says, to the islanders he was a nobody, but to me the most impressive man I may have ever met. Really? Yeah. Now, of course, you live on Nantucket, and you are the director of the Egan Institute of Maritime Studies, which is uh, focused on the history of Nantucket, I gather, among other things. Right. Um, how is the Essex and its story remembered in or on Nantucket to this day? Well, it's it's funny. You know, it's not a story that fits comfortably into a, a Chamber of Commerce brochure, but there are uh, evident. There's plenty of evidence of of the Essex and the people who survived. Pollard's Pollard's house is a, a gift shop now, uh -huh. and uh, what's really kind of uh, uh, neat is the Nantucket Historical Association is, as we speak, putting together yeah. an exhibit on the Essex, which will be in their Peter Folger Museum opening up uh, this Memorial mm -hmm. Day and be there all summer, in which they're gathering together what we have left of the Essex. Uh, Are the Pollard and Chase families still represented in the census of Nantucket? Uh, no, no. The, uh, well, Pollard did not have any children, but uh -huh. uh, one of the, uh, the Chase, Chase, though, um, I was visited by uh, two of Chase's descendants uh, who, who uh, visited me on Nantucket mm -hmm. a couple of months ago, and we lay a, a wreath at uh, at their great-great-great-great-grandfather's grave. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was also contacted uh, by email just a few days ago by the de uh, descendants of Charles Ramsdell, who had just stumbled across my book and um, luckily were enjoyed it. And uh, uh, tell me to, the, to this day, the Ramsdells have a tradition by which if uh, when it's dinner time and, and they don't get fed, their, their uh, biological clock uh, requires it. And they've always jokingly uh, attributed it to their their great 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 grandfather's ordeal it's a very exciting uh and uh, a very uh um, testing the limits sort of story it, it brings you to the limits of yeah. human sensibility and of human uh morality uh 
as any such situation in extremists would, when ultimately what's at issue is whether you have to kill right. a friend and eat him to stay alive. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of that bottom line scenario. Yeah, it can't get more urgent than yeah. that, I would think. Uh, and it uh, is, of course, eminently readable. The new book by Nathaniel Philbrick, In the Heart of the Sea, The Tragedy of the Whale Ship Essex, which I uh, think I did not say earlier, is published by Viking. And there is also, I gather, an audio cassette version. Right. Uh, and uh, Edward Her Herman mm -hmm. has read it, and uh, it, it did a great job. It's um, really uh, riveting uh, listening, if mm -hmm. I do say so myself. Well, you're entitled to say so. <laughs> okay. Uh, and I thank you very much for okay. that. Okay. Well, thank you.